What is poppin', crackin', shakin', sautéin', what is good? This is Chef Henzerino. Today is the 10th of March, and we've got a really cool episode today that I'm gonna be super excited about. It's called Talked Curdy to Me. It's gonna be volume one of a cheese series, because if you know anything about me, I motherfucking love cheese. So let's get into our mise en place. So the appetizer round is gonna have the fuck is lactose? If you're lactose in toddler ants, you're gonna wanna stick around for this one. It'll explain a little bit of shit. The next we've got our big bite. It's gonna be some cheesy criteria basics, let you know what you should be looking for and how to identify some different cheeses so you know what you're actually doing, what you're buying, what you're eating. And for you to take to go, we're gonna talk about some stinky cheese at the end. So let's get everything popping with our riddle or our joke for this week. And for this week, it's uh, a joke. So the answer is going to be at the end. But the front is, where does a wheel of cheese stay on vacation? For our appetizer round today, we've got the fuck is lactose. So lactose is a milk sugar that's in milk. Fucking duh. But it's a disaccharide. And disaccharide, di means two, saccharide means sugar. Uh, so lactose is two sugars, monosaccharides, attached to one another and they travel together. Those two simple sugars, or monosaccharides, are called glucose and galactose. And this is what you're left with after milk is treated and shit, but we'll get a little bit into that in a second. Um, so lacto lactase is the enzyme that's responsible for the breakdown of that lactose in milk, and that is what is the cause for lactose intolerance. Uh, which is different from a milk allergy, wherein that's where you're allergic to particular proteins that are in milk. Lactose intolerance means that your body just doesn't make lactase, that enzyme, uh, that's needed to break up that disaccharide lactose into those uh, individual monosaccharides, glucose and galactose. Um, so when you're making cheese, you add rennet, uh, which can either come from vegetables or like the lining of a calf's stomach or some other animals. Uh, but it's added, and lactose is then broken down into those individual monomers, uh, glucose and galactose. And so cheese doesn't have lactose in it. Uh, a lot of people are just eating way too much of it in conjunction to either like a pre-existing intolerance or allergies. And they end up like leaking cheese on the back end. And they're like, oh, well, <laughs> I'm just, you know, lactose intolerant. And it's like the the lactose has been broken down and so like okay in fresh cheeses like mozzarella some like fresh goat cheese or some stuff stuff that hasn't really been aged at all and is like really like a quick turnaround from like fresh milk to cheese you, you do want to have to be a little cautious if you're like very sensitive to lactose there could be like negligible amounts of lactose in those fresh cheeses but as they age they just continue to kind of like die off a little slower and slower just think of it kind of like a half-life they have a certain amount of time before it's completely gone but by the time most cheese hits your plate it's already been aged like parmesan that's aged anywhere from like 12 to like 36 months even depending um i mean one of my favorite goudas is like a five-year aged gouda so like it's had plenty of time to have the lactose you know chill out Let's get into our big bite for this week. It is some cheesy criteria basics. And with these, you'll be able to determine what kind of cheese you're dealing with. And a lot of them you can even use in the store before you even buy the cheese to get a pretty good idea of what that cheese is going to taste like or how it will perform or uh, just different things of that nature. So you have at least some info going into it so you're not 
spending like uh, 15 bucks sometimes even on a chunk of who God knows what. So the first thing you can look at is the country of origin. So think about it just like where a wine aficionado will be like, hmm, is that Sauvignon Blanc from the Marlboro Valley of New Zealand? It's not. I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> That's because terroir, like the, the word for that, and I'm, my pronunciation might be fucked, but you get it. It's T-E-R-R-I-O-I-R or something like that. But anyways, it's just saying that where the product came from, the crop, the grapes, the grasses, the milk, whatever, it's being affected by the specific soil content composition and vegetation composition of that area. So if you're letting your cows eat a, a field that's full of like crimson clover and a bunch of herbs and really beautiful thick grasses and you don't treat any of it with bullshit, um, you're going to get amazing milk, like very uh, full, very natural tasting milk that's even got like it's not like a very white color like I feel like a lot of us associate with milk. It's got like a cream color to it, like a yellowish almost tinge. And and that and that's not the case everywhere. That's uh, just in some cases where they're eating what they're supposed to be eating. And this is compared to when cows are eating even like subpar grasses or being fed mostly grain, if any grass, which is the... Uh, unfortunately, the circumstance in a lot of cases is it's just... it's. Un undoubtedly cheaper to feed the, uh, a large animal something cheaper like grain as compared to grass um, but that's why it's really important to like rotate your your grazing and that's that's a whole nother show but uh, ideally I'll bring in somebody who knows much much more about that than I do I have somebody in my mind but um, so like the soil in France versus Italy versus the US versus Japan versus who cares where they all have differences to offer uh, that's going to get imparted through the animal's milk. Which brings us into our next one. Uh, our next identifier is milk type. So like where did the milk come from and how has it been handled? Uh, so there's two parts to this one. So the first one's going to be what animal did this milk come from? And I'll go through the list of the main ones and a little bit about them. But there's cow's milk cheese. And cows produce the most amount of milk relatively to these other animals. And it's about 15 gallons a day, like is the middle of that range. It's mostly water, contains high levels of that lactose, that disaccharide we talked about earlier, uh, as well as alpha S1 casein protein, uh, which is a major allergen. And that's usually the one that people are allergic to if they can't drink milk due to an allergy. And so cow's milk also has very large fat globule, globules relatively. And it results in a milk that's a little more difficult for humans to digest because it's not like like our uh, humans' breast milk to where those fat globules are, I mean, literally specifically made for us to consume. These are much larger relatively, so our body doesn't really know how to handle them off the bat. Um, but their milk can be described as pretty, like, lightly grassy and sweet. There's not a whole, whole lot going on there. It's delicious, don't get me wrong, but it's kind of just your, your base model. So going in next, we've got goat's milk, and goats produce about two gallons of milk, and this is a, about like a daily thing, um, and their milk is really clean and sort of like citrusy and tangy. It's one of my favorites, and they also have uh, more nutrients than cow's milk. Um, so for example, it's got about 13% more calcium and greater amounts of like really healthy uh, short and medium chain uh, fatty acids which are really really beneficial for your body and like your brain power too a lot more people drink goat's milk worldwide than they actually do 
cow's milk, which is something I feel like we would never think here in America. Uh, but, you know, that's corporations at work. That's literally why they spend billions every year. But, you know, again, another problem for another day. So getting in next, there's sheep's milk. They produce only about two quarts uh, daily, so much, much smaller amounts um, of very protein, sugar, and fat-rich milk daily. So, yeah, it's a lot less, but you can do so, so much more with it relatively. Um, so it actually outweighs cow's milk when it comes to cheese production. So you, you can get about... Uh, you, you get more cheese per gallon than you do with cow's milk because there's so so much high quality uh, like fat and sugar and protein it actually kind of looks a little like yellowish uh, at times then almost lastly there's buffalo's milk it's it's the one you'll see the most that's why I'm saying almost lastly because there's one more note but buffaloes produce about four to six gallons of clean really herbaceous floral milk a lot of people swear by it and it's actually the OG milk for buffalo production in Italy. Um, it's got way more calcium than milk from cow's goat or sheep. It contains more butter fat and protein than cow's milk and is like a really really rich source of phosphorus, vitamin A, and iron. So that last note that I had was there's other milks. You, like there's there's somebody in New York who made cheese out of human breast milk. Like not for production like they just made some but you can. That's the point. Like if it's got nipples and it makes milk you can make cheese out of it so like you can get donkey um knack which is just the female version of a yak reindeer camel llama and alpaca milk like trust is serious if it makes milk it makes cheese so the second element of that milk is that you can either get it raw or pasteurized so raw milk is a more natural milk product going into like cheese making it contains a, a host of beneficial bacteria and flavor that's completely unmatched in like its flavor purity because it hasn't been treated or had anything done to it. Some popular raw milk cheeses that you might already be hip to are Parmigiano Reggiano and Manchego and Gruyere. So when it comes to pasteurized milk, there's two different options, but essentially it's a heating process that des destroys um, some heat resistant like non-spore forming disease causing microorganisms that are found in milk one of like the big examples of this and again pronunciations are out the window but mycobacterium tuberculosis um, is one of like those main players that we're trying to get rid of when we're pasteurizing milk uh, the treatment destroys most of the organisms that cause spoilage and it also prolongs the storage time of the food uh, the more like crazy you go with the pasteurization so there's a few different options when it comes to pasteurization, there is HTST or UHT. So HTST, which stands for high temperature short time, heats the product, in this case milk, to about 160.7 degrees Fahrenheit and keeps it there for 15 seconds. And that's what most milk is. Like most of the milk you're buying from the store is this HTST. And it keeps in uh, from production date about two weeks or so. And then when you have UHT, which is ultra high temperature pasteurization, that heats the product, in this case milk, to 275 degrees Fahrenheit for about one to two seconds. But the advantage is it kills all the same bacteria and all that, but it keeps for about three months in the same conditions as the other milk. Next uh, identifier you can use is aging. So 
Aging can do a lot of things to a cheese. It can increase the sweetness. It can strengthen like the smell or the structure. It can really change it entirely depending on how and for how long it's done. Um, so some cheeses like Parmesan are aged for 12 months usually, but all the way up to like even 36 or more months depending on the variety and the place making them. Uh, my favorite aged cheese is actually Rembrandt Gouda. It's from Holland and it's aged about 12 months. It is it is mind-blowing. It is so good. I would eat like, duh, I don't know, a couple pounds <laughs> when I used to work in cheese shops, like on a regular basis. Um, okay, so let's use Parmesan real quick as like a case study. So there's something really cool you can see when you're looking at the surface of some aged cheeses, in this case Parmesan. So when you're looking at a slice of it, you can see these small little white dots that are about the size of a pen tip. Think of them like small crystal stars in like this galaxy of cheese. And those crystals are made up of a non-essential amino acid. That just means our body makes it. It's not essential for us to get it from our diet because like our body would lack it otherwise. Uh, it's called tyrosine. And those tyrosine crystals come from calcium and lactic acid, which creates calcium lactate crystals. And those are the crystals that you're looking at in cheeses like cheddar and parm and even some blue cheeses. Uh, so tyrosine works as a team, like in tandem with glutamates, MSG, that really savory stuff, like natural sources of it. Uh, and they provide not only um, a crunchy texture that a lot of people are just all about, huge fans for, but it also brings a complex savoriness that has like a hint of sweetness that's super unique to these crystals and cheese that I'm all about. And tyrosine was actually first discovered in cheese because tyros or tyros, however, actually means cheese in Greek. It comes from phenylalanine and is essential in the production of like melanin for your skin, hair, and eye color, dopamine for regulating your reward and pleasure centers, also like your memory and motor skills. Um, and also thyroid hor hormone production is stimulated by these uh, that help regulate your metabolism. Uh, metabolism as well as adrenaline and noradrenaline for your flight or fight responses when you're experiencing stress it actually helps you uh, possibly navigate that stressful situation easier like it, studies done it, this is a very short like a, like synopsis of these but eating cheese of this sort before going into a stressful situation uh, ends up with a better result because you're able to think clearer, you think more uh, critically than you would otherwise because your body's not worrying about dealing with the stress. The cheese goes, hey, I've got 40% of the stress, go make your decisions. So getting away from that now, uh, one of the last things that uh, I would talk about, actually the last one for identifying your cheese would be a compositional label. So. Uh, I like to divide cheeses into eight different groups or families, and they, these are not like definitive, like it really just depends on how you see cheese. But the way that I split them up are into fresh, bloomy or bloomy rind, hard and grating cheeses, flavored cheeses, cheddar, blue, semi-firm, and washed rind cheeses. Um, so there are qualities of each of these that can overlap with the others, like they're not mutually exclusive. So for example, a semi-firm cheese can be melty, and so can a cheddar. But not every semi-firm and cheddar cheeses are like good melting cheeses. Uh, also like a flavored cheese can be a bloomy rind, and a cheddar can have a washed rind. So like even the categories themselves can work in tandem with one another, you feel me? So like I'll give 
uh, my top recommendations for each of these families and hopefully you'll be able to try some new things out of it too but um, before I get into that I've worked in a bunch of different cheese shops uh, for like Murray's and at like Jungle Gyms here in Cincinnati I worked there and it was a lot of fun I really loved it it's one of my favorite jobs I've ever had and again I ate a massive fuck ton of cheese and I also really just got to help people understand their cheese more which brings me a lot of happiness because I feel like when people understand their food they really enjoy their food more because there's just there's more to sink your teeth into without that being a pun like I wasn't really trying but there we go so the categories as I break them down in my recommendations we'll start with the fresh cheeses and I would recommend halloumi uh, which is a grilling cheese well it's not a grilling cheese it's really good for grilling though it comes in a uh, a brick sort of like how feta usually is seen in stores um, but it stands really well to like pan searing or grilling and it becomes super ooey gooey and you eat it with like some toasts it's amazing there's also quark um, or kvark is also pronounced like more in like the european side of things it is fantastic if you can find it if you were lucky enough to live anywhere close enough to urbanstead uh it's they are a cheesemaker here in cincinnati it is outstanding they make the best kvark i've ever had um but it's so it's so so good so it's kind of like kind of like i guess ricotta you could say like a farmer's sort of cheese um but it's perfect you could put it in risotto you can make cakes with it you can just eat it straight up with some like olive oil and like chopped up like antipasta basically um just get some get i don't care if you can get it from urbanstead get it from there but just get some the last fresh cheese i'd recommend is cotilla it is a mexican cheese that's pretty crumbly and it actually doesn't melt entirely so it's perfect for tacos because it's like a cool little calming sensation on top of like all the chilies and like the the hot meat that you're using and like all of it it just works so so well definitely recommend using that for any uh any application where you don't want it to melt entirely or to offer sort of like a mouth calming sensation next there are bloomy rinds so bloomy rind is like that brie everybody knows brie you know what that that looks like my top recommendations are brie de mo and Real quick, I want to talk about why that brie in particular is one of my favorites that I recommend. Because it's not necessarily like the best brie or anything. It is just the closest you can get in America to like what like that OG sort of brie tastes like. It's still nowhere. It's like a world away. But it's like the closest. It, it gets nice and like melty and like it kind of like just oozes out and it's it's amazing. So it's called Brie de Mo. It is spelled uh, M-E-U-X. Next would be uh, Cremeau de Bourgogne. Again, don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. <clears throat> but the message I'm getting here is any triple cream brie, anything that says it's a triple cream brie, get it. So what cream means, brie is a double cream cheese to begin with. That means its butterfat content is about 60 to 75% or so. A triple cream brie means that that butterfat content is at least at like a 75%. And to give you a frame of reference, butter is around like 82% or so. So <laughs> it's getting up there, but that's why it's so goddamn good. Uh, lastly, in this section, there's uh, Boucheron or Boucherondin. And again, pronunciation, please don't come for me. Uh, but it's a goat cheese, and it comes in a log. And it's it comes like kind of rolled up in like a sushi mat looking almost thing. 
but it is so good as you look at the outside the entire cheese is white except for the exterior is like a light gray and that's called the cream line and as that cheese slowly ages that cream line comes closer and closer and closer to the center and a lot of people really swear by it that's actually my favorite part I like to wait I cut it into slices let that cream line really just kind of make its way through the center uh, I'll use some of it fresh don't get me wrong I'm not crazy but like I'll take the stuff that's now had that cream line into it and I'll mix it up with some like sour Michigan cherries or something it is so good try it and it's called Boucheron so the next category is hard and grating cheeses these are ones that uh, you can grate of course but they're also good for just kind of like eating with some bread and stuff like on a picnic because they can stay out all day um, which is another great benefit to them and like Parmesan is one of these Pecorino is one of these but I'm going to give you some suggestions that aren't those so that you have some new stuff to try there is Mazithra which is from Greece it is like this little cannonball looking thing but it's pure white it's really really hard um, but definitely try it Mazithra next is Mimolette and again it kind of looks like a little cannonball but this one is like a blaze orange kind of like a burnt sienna looking orange but oh it's so sweet and complex it's really good and lastly there is Piave Stravecchio think about it sort of like a pecorino or a parmesan sort of child like uh, style cheese it's like the the cousin of those really good though definitely a a top choice of mine for stuffing into like pepidou peppers along with a little chunk of goat cheese and grilling them amazing next category is flavored so i would recommend no woman cheese this comes from i believe murray's cheese is like who makes it um but it is a semi-firm cheese um, that is sort of like, I guess like a cheddar sort of style, like a really, really mild cheddar. But the flavors are like Jamaican jerk. So you've got like nutmeg and some allspice, cinnamon. It's a really, really cool cheese that there's really not a whole lot like it. But I'm also a sucker for anything jerk flavored. So I definitely like it. Next one is Cotswold. It's a really, really clean, uh, creamy Gloucester style cheese. Uh, from England and it's got like onions chives uh, some like onion real garlicky um, sort of flavor it goes amazing stuffed into burgers or uh, put on top of hot dogs like if you just melt it real quick and you like drizzle it over brats oh it's fucking nuts last one I'd recommend in the flavored section is Merlot Bella Vitano. really any Bella Vitano, uh, they're from a company called Sartori in Wisconsin but they make like an espresso bellavitano, a uh, black pepper bellavitano, which is one of my favorites as well. But the Merlot bellavitano, they make the bellavitano cheese, which is sort of like a cross between cheddar and parmesan and gouda. Like the savoriness of a parmesan, the sort of waxy sort of creaminess of a cheddar, and then like the really clean complexity of a gouda. And then for the merlot bit or the black pepper bit espresso bit whatever they uh treat the entire outside so for merlot they just soak the whole wheel in merlot wine for a while for the black pepper and the espresso they just take those grinds and pat them onto the outside and let it age with that so it really imparts just a really light pepperiness or sort of like sweet savoriness that you get from like coffee but the merlot is like it's it's very really good in dips like mixed with some just red onion things of that sort 
but I always put it on a cheese board because I've never come across somebody who did not like it. Next category is cheddar. There's tons and tons and tons of cheddars. Uh, it originates in England. Cheddar is actually the name of the process of it, of cheddaring cheese, of cutting it and stacking them to let them do their thing. But I would recommend any cheddar you can find that's cloth-bound to try. Uh, cloth-bound cheddar is so unique because it's sort of the same style of like cave-aging something. So you get a lot of those qualities. Uh, but in a cheddar, which you don't really see too, too often. Uh, it's getting more and more popular now, though, so you shouldn't have too much trouble finding that. The next one I'd recommend is an Irish whiskey cheddar. Uh, the one I'm thinking of in, uh, like specifically is from Kerrygold. It comes in a black wax, and it's a small wheel, like maybe only 7 pounds. And it's a little more expensive, but it is wild. Like, I there there's nothing to compare it to. They put actual Irish whiskey in the cheddar. And I, I had a couple of customers that I had coming in monthly to buy entire wheels of it because they just went through it monthly and they just they knew they would want it. The last cheddar I'd recommend is kind of weird and a lot of people look at me funny when I say it, but is pepperoni cheddar. It's, it's so good. Like, you can put it in, like, on, on pizza for sure. But, like, sandwiches, like deli sandwiches, it's perfect. It is so good. It may be just me, because, like, I'm a little Italian boy who loves pepperoni at any point that I can get it. So, that might also be the case. Next is blue cheese. I'm actually not even a huge fan of blue cheese. I've had, like, hundreds of blue cheeses. It's just not my thing. I just, I don't know, I just don't like it. Uh, but there are some that I can recommend you, because I they're the ones I could tolerate. <laughs> or uh, they're a good starting place for different people so like if you're one of those people who likes a fairly strong blue cheese like you want like your face to pucker almost even um like it's got metallic -y taste to it like there's gold mold not just blue and green like there's little little tinge gold edges and stuff it gets wild but that one's called maytag blue yeah like the washer and dryer and dishwasher company maytag that's the same family but man, do they make a wild blue cheese. Next is the Cambazola Black Label, which comes out of Germany, I believe. Um, make sure it's the Black Label, because they have Cambazola and like Mushroom Cambazola and some other ones. But the Black Label is like a triple cream brie mixed with a blue cheese. So it's a really light, airy, creamy, kind of easy walk into blue cheese with like a sort of hint of it. So it's, it's a little easier to handle. Uh, the last one I'd recommend is Cashel Blue. I believe this is also from Kerrygold, but it's a super creamy, like, amazingly sweet, and with enough of that blue cheese, uh, like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Like, metallic-iness? I don't like it, so I feel like metallic-iness is, like, not a, an appealing word to describe it as, but, oh well. Cashel Blue, though, is the name of that one. Alright, second to last is the semi-firm cheeses. The ones I'd recommend are a Gouda of any sort. There's a huge variety. There's flavored Goudas, aged Goudas, young Goudas. There's Edom, which is basically Gouda. There's waxed wrapped. There's not waxed. There's, um, I don't even know. I, I, there's so many I forgot which ones I already mentioned. There's like smoked Gouda. That's a really, really good one a lot of people like. That one's really nice, uh, sliced really thin for sandwiches too. There's also a Manchego. You can get older, young 
Manchego. I definitely recommend the aged, but I'm an aged sort of cat. But really, really great on any cheese board, really. But also salads, it goes really nicely in because it's got enough of the saltiness, enough of the creaminess, enough of the sweetness to where it can really work in most salads. So like if you're throwing nuts or cranberries or mixed greens or arugula, anything you're tossing in there, it can kind of appeal to any of those. The last one I'd recommend, sort of in the same right of Gouda, is Havarti. It's got so many different forms. There's like caraway Havarti, which is amazing. There's dill Havarti, which a lot of people like. I'm not a huge dill person unless it's like in a pickle. <laughs> so that's for somebody else. But oh, it's so good. But the, the OG Havarti with like nothing in it is so amazingly creamy. Anytime you want to make anything that needs to melt. So like mac and cheese, a cheese sauce, like any of it. Use Havarti in your blend because even if it doesn't bring too much to the flavor, in my opinion, of like, uh, or too much to the party <laughs> in terms of flavor, uh, it, it does make up for it for the melty quality because it kind of will make up for uh, other cheeses that are lacking that too. The last category is going to be washed rind cheeses, and this is. A lot of people kind of just chalk them up to always being stinky, and that's just not the case. The washed rind cheese actually uh, comes from, this might not be like the OG origin story, but like the the largest like culprit for getting this cheese going are uh, monks in monasteries. They did not eat meat, so they really relied on cheese to get their protein. And they also, a lot of them made beer too, because that's fine to drink and stuff like there's no you're not eating an animal and they would take the beer and end up washing these cheeses that they were making and eating anyways because of the protein but they would wash them with their beers and a lot of times they'd be like trappist ales and like these really high alcohol content really uh almost bitter sort of ales and uh just belgian trappist beers and they offer one a lot of like saltiness because they do add salt it is a brine um but it's a saltiness and a savoriness and again with the beer there's like a weediness even sometimes depending on the beer being used that uh translate into a savoriness because those starches will just kind of mature and ferment and it really changes the cheese and it's it some people can't handle it because they just they can't do the the smell or the anything but again do not assume that all of these cheeses are going to be of that sort a lot of them are so much more mild than i feel the, the the bad rap they get so the ones i'd recommend are telegio that's my ultimate it is an italian one it comes in a cute little square but it is one of those super uh like liquidy kind of running out like how brie does but it's got that complex savoriness and like the enough of a like a fermented tinge that goes really well with like uh bitter crisp like pickles and uh red onions things like that next one is gruyere a lot of people know about gruyere like gruyere but they don't know that gruyere is the washed rind cheese um, that's also cave aged in most cases, not all cases, but, um, and it's also not always a washed rind. Uh, some places don't do it, but traditionally it is, but that is an incredible one. It's like essential to the fondue mix, of course, but 
uh, paired up with any sort of ham, especially like German brand ham, like the glazed sort that's smoked a little bit, oh, it is unbeatable. Last one I'd recommend for the wash rind is Morbier. A lot of people haven't heard this one, but uh, Morbier today is it's kind of like a semi a semi firm, semi soft uh, cheese that a lot of time has a wax outside, but in the center of it, it's got a veg a vegetable ash line, like just a line through the center of it of uh, like a just a gray sort of satellite sort of like a sound bite look um, and that isn't necessary or essential to the process now it used to be uh, and they're kind of just doing a, an aesthetic callback with that ash line now uh, but they used to take when they were making cheese at the end of the day uh, the amount of cheese curds and everything they had left that wasn't enough for a batch but would be enough uh, when added to the next day's milking they would just cover it in soot to keep flies and other things of that sort off of the cheese curds. And then when they come back in the next day, they just mix it in. And there would be that little bit of ash and soot that was just mixed in. Uh, but that was for, like, health purposes because it was so goddamn long ago they didn't have actual, like, processes to protect against that. So today they just do it as, like, a, hey, this is where we came from. Like, they don't have to still do that to make sure that... There's not, like, flies all over their cheese and everything. But those are my recommendations for and uh, identifying your cheeses as well, just so you're maybe a little bit of a, a smarter cheese consumer and you kind of can go for what you want and know what you want instead of just always having to take um, the word of whatever person is uh, whose job it is to literally sell you these things, and there's a time limit on a lot of them. So, you know. All right, all right. On your way out the door, got something for you. It's going to be stinky cheese today. So here's a weird question. But have you ever smelled some cheese and been like, whoa, who put their foot in this and not in a good way? So some cheese is actually known for its really, really strong smell, right? And that's actually caused by the bacterium, uh, Brevibacterium linens. Again, never come for me for pronunciation and stuff. Uh, so this particular bacterium is present on human skin, and that's actually what causes your foot odor. So it is the same bacterium, so don't get it twisted. The same bacterium is actually used to ferment a lot of different cheeses, like Munster, Limburger, Telegio, one of my favorites, and also Raclette, the one with like the crazy grills and the melters and all that sort of shit. What's crazy about this particular bacterium, it can actually produce various uh, bacteriosins, bacteriosins, uh, and antimicrobial uh, anti substances. They manifest uh, antimicrobial activity that's directed against the very same bacterial strains that produced them, or against strains of closely related species. Um, the synthesis of these bac uh, bacteriosins takes place under control of the genes that are located in your plasma, uh, plasmid or chromosomal DNA, uh, which in parallel contains your genetic determinants of that uh, resistance to the produced bacteriosin that's or bacteriosin that's uh, that we're talking about with uh, these strains of bacteria that's making this cheese smell like this. So, like in essence, what's really cool about it is that these have been shown to be inhibitory towards different foodborne pathogens, like uh, Staphylococcus aureus and Listeria monocytogenes. Again, never about the pronunciation but the cool thing 
is that these are super healthy for us. Like, where did it come from that, like, you should never even eat this because, like, it's so goddamn gross that some people won't even get near it. But it's like, they're, they're literally doing things that help protect you against foodborne illness. The same foodborne illness that would otherwise perhaps affect you when it comes to cheese production. So it's taking care of itself. Like, that is so wild to me. Like, forget that it makes it smell just like a foot. That's fucking crazy. Alright, so before we go, let's uh, let's go back to our joke. And I'll give you the answer to it. You've been waiting patiently, probably milling about in your brain. What the hell? Uh, you've probably been trying to figure out, where does a wheel of cheese stay on vacation? Well, of course they stay at the Stilton. Thank you guys so much for listening to this second episode ever of A Yeasted Dough with Chef Enzarino. I'm really happy to be bringing you food knowledge of any sort. Please leave a voice message. Uh, if you're using the Anchor FM app, you can like leave me messages. Let me know what you want to talk about, what you want to hear me talk about, what I should shut up about, what I should talk about a little bit more, anything you think. Uh, if it's good or if you want me to or if I want to, I can play it on the show um, as well if it's like a really good question and we can just go in-depth talking about it, whatever ends up working. But I really hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about cheese with me over the course of the last however long. I really love cheese. That's why this was a volume one. There will be multiple others because there's so much more to talk about. But thank you so much for taking a listen today. I really hope you enjoy the rest of your day, and as always, thank you so much for your support.